The reading is from Exodus 34, verses 4 to 8, <clears throat> the new stone tablets. So Moses chiselled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, <clears throat> the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, <clears throat> maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. <coughs> Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Uh, and I just ask uh, Chris to come and I'll pray for him, please. Okay. Heavenly Father, Thank you for being here with us this morning as we come to worship you. Thank you too for being with Chris, our pastor and brother in Christ, as he prepared for this service. We pray that you would be encouraged and enlightened by your words, spoken to us by Chris through your Holy Spirit. Please bless us all today in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Sorry. <laughs> well, good morning, all. It's good to see you. It's quite dark this morning, just trying to peer into the darkness and see you all. Well, over the last few months, we've been exploring Exodus 34 with the help of John Mark Comer's book, God Has a Name, which we've been dipping into as we've been going through the series. And we started with the question, how do you picture God? How do you see him? When you hear the name God, what comes to mind? What mental image arises? And we were challenged by the 20th century writer A.W. Tozer, who said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He went on to say that we naturally tend to gravitate towards our mental image of God. And if you could extract from any person a complete answer to the question, what comes to mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that person. Just let that sink in for a moment. It's quite deep for a Sunday morning, isn't it? Or put another way, who God is has profound implications for who we are. And so over the last few months, we've been looking at God's self-disclosure to Moses as seen in Exodus 34, as we've just heard Angie read. Because if we want to know who God is and what he's like, what he's about, then we need to go to the source, 
which is God himself. And bit by bit, we work through this magnificent and profound revelation. We remember that when God starts to describe himself, he starts with his name, as Heather reminded us earlier. And in our Bibles, it's the word Lord. And in some translations, that, that name will be in capital letters, which is translated from the Hebrew word, which is spelt in capital letters YHWH, which through translation over time gains some vowels and becomes Yahweh. And in ancient writing, like the Bible, a name was way more than just a label. It was your identity, your destiny, the truth hidden in your very being. It was your inner Johnness or your inner Carolness. What made you, you. And so Yahweh goes on. He unpacks what his name means. He unpacks what he's about. He unpacks who he is, what his essence is. Because, and this is the bit we all need to really take hold of, because he wants to be known by you. He wants to be known. And so we remember that he repeats his name twice because he really, really wants to be known by you. And he wants you to be still. And he wants you to know that in a world full of gods with a lowercase g, he is the God with a capital G. Right from the beginning, the Bible writers assert that Yahweh is the creator God, the one who made all things, including you, including me. He is the first and the last. There is no one like him. And he has full authority over all of creation. We then went on to learn that he is not only all-powerful, but he is also compassionate and gracious. And this word pairing shows that God is parent-like towards us. The root word meaning of compassion, as you may remember, is womb-like. That maternal instinct that mothers feel for their children. And we remember that nothing makes Yahweh's uterus flip more than when his children need him. Compassionate is a feeling word, but gracious is an action word. It means to show grace or favor. Like a parent, God feels deeply for his children. And when they are in trouble, he comes to their rescue. He feels it, and then he acts. We looked at the parable of the prodigal son, and I loved how that was referenced in that first song as well. A lot of this has been referenced in that first song that we heard today, which is great. And we remember that, that parable of the prodigal son, and we remember that God's baseline emotion towards us is mercy. That when we repent, which simply means turn around, turn back to him, we are met not with judgment, 
but with a father running towards us with open arms. A father who is slow to anger, whose nostrils are bigger than we could ever comprehend. God is patient. The one who makes anger distant and brings compassion near. Yahweh is slow to anger. You have to really, really work hard to make him angry. But he does get angry, really angry at times. And more often than not, that anger comes out of a jealous love for us. It's the anger of a parent for their children, a father who wants the best for their children and can't stand by and watch them be abused or ruin their lives in destructive living. His anger comes out of his deep love for us. His abounding love and faithfulness. And we remember what John says in the scriptures, that God, Yahweh, is love. That's his essence. That's who he is. And that love is fully committed to us. Like a marriage, he loves us through better or worse. And yet it goes beyond marriage because he promises us that if we are unfaithful to him, he will continue to be faithful to us because he can't be someone he is not. He has made a covenant with us through Jesus Christ, his son, who in love gave himself completely for us. He is for us. He is for you. He is not going to give up on you or walk away. He's completely committed to you, for better or for worse. His love and his faithfulness is abounding to thousands and thousands. And when we return to him, just like that prodigal son did, he willingly forgives our wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And even though sin has its consequences upon us and those around us, sometimes for generations, as we thought about a couple of weeks ago, he has dealt with these sins through his son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sins of the world. The one who willingly took upon himself that wickedness, that rebellion, that sin, and face the consequences that they ultimately bring, death. In love, God gave his one and only son for us. And out of love for his father and for you, for his world, Jesus willingly laid down his life for us so that sin in all its forms could be dealt with once and for all. And through Jesus' death, we receive not only forgiveness, 
but fullness of life. His resurrection means that death is not the end. Death and sin do not have the last word. God loves you and receives you just as you are right now. But he loves you too much to leave you as you are. He is fully committed to you and wants to love the hell out of you. He's not going to turn a blind eye to your sin because like a good parent, he disciplines those he loves. Sin is dehumanizing, but he wants fullness of life for you. And we can receive this through Jesus Christ, through faith in him. This is the good news. Now I've summarized very briefly the last two months, which leaves some of you thinking, well, if he could do that in 10 minutes, Let's not go there. But there's so much more to it than that. And hopefully you found the series really beneficial as we've gone deeper into those elements. But what struck me was verse 8. You see, as Moses receives Yahweh's self-revelation of who he is, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, full of mercy and forgiveness, just and righteous. What does Moses do? He bowed to the ground at once and he worshipped. This is the only fitting response to a God like this. And I'm going to quote one last time from John Mark Comer about this. He says this, We don't worship Yahweh to manipulate him into blessing us, to curry his favour or get on his good side. No, he's compassionate and gracious. We're already on his good side. And we don't worship God to mitigate his anger as if he's unmerciful, just waiting to lash out at the tiniest mistake. No, he is slow to anger. Nor do we worship God because our life is falling apart and we need the man upstairs to come through in a pinch. No, he's abounding in love and faithfulness. He's committed to us. We worship Yahweh because he's Yahweh. When you see through all the myths and misconceptions about God and Yahweh's character starts to come into view, what else could you do but worship?